0: Welcome to The Clarifier, where we take a close look at our toughest problems at work and turn that discomfort into advantage. In this episode,
1: you get to meet Steph C. I hired them to do something, they start doing it, and then I start freaking out about them doing the thing I hired them to do. (laughs) After graduating from Stanford
0: and spending time at Google, Steph founded Thinking Machines. When her company grew to over 50 people, she hit a wall the complexity of scaling became very real. Suddenly, she had to hire people to build processes to get things done reliably, where before she'd used intuition and creativity. It was weird, even threatening, and eventually awesome.
1: Where um, where these people came in um, was to set up systems and structure where my cowboy ass just could not do it.
0: As Steph's coach, I've watched her as founder and CEO grow this bootstrap company from a small team of data scientists to a dominant AI and data leader across Southeast Asia. I'm thrilled Steph will be sharing her founder journey today, specifically what it felt like when she discovered her superpower had become a liability, and what she did when she realized scaling meant dealing with complexities she couldn't handle alone. Steph created Thinking Machines, or TM, to unlock the power of data. She imagined a world where any employee, regardless of rank, could use data to make better decisions. And she wanted to make better jobs for emerging tech talent in the Philippines, something she just didn't see happening in 2015. She left Silicon Valley, went home to the Philippines, and got to work.
1: We were so scrappy and everybody who came on board was such a cool unique like amazingly talented person um the very first person to join uh thinking machines um she was a A journalist who had attended a workshop that I was giving, which was a beginners like learn how to code workshop. Um, And um, as I had given everybody like uh, a lecture and then some exercises to work through, I was walking around the room figuring out like, okay, what's everybody doing? And I just saw that even though she was a beginner at coding, there was such strong clarity of thought uh, in what she was trying to do that um, after the workshop, she came up to me asking for more resources on how to get better at coding, and I said hey, do you want a job? Uh, and thankfully she said yes. Uh, and we're, we're still working together today. Um, a lot of TM's early employees, um, I met them through open source Python events. They were making like really cool, you know, we were showing each other um, fun, small code projects, teaching each other, learning from each other. And that was the first pool of people that I'd recruited from uh, in Thinking Machines. So this was a small band um, of um Interesting nerds. Steph wanted to create jobs that would allow these folks
0: to flourish instead of mute their innovation and creativity.
1: There are jobs where there's a ceiling to how much you can grow because the nature of the job puts you as a cog in a machine. So for example, like many outsourced jobs in the Philippines, very strict KPIs you have to hit, you do the job in a very, very specific way and you're replaceable. You're pretty instantly replaceable. Somebody else can be trained to do the job in a heartbeat. That's not the kind of job where somebody who has their own unique strengths and talents, that's not a job where they can figure out how they can excel. In in some ways, I actually think of myself as a gardener uh, for a lot of the talent in TM. And um, showing other companies a vision of what does excellence look like like what can you take from our garden how can you envision a garden uh, kind of job instead of a cog kind of job and build that idea of excellence uh, and growth into your own organizations Um, one of the reasons why I was able to talk people to joining in the first place I started this company when I was 26 and um, looking back now I think like wow It's a miracle that these people said yes to to me when I said, would you please uh, come work with me um, on this? And um, one of the reasons they did is because I'm a pretty um, um, good data science teacher. Uh, I was pretty good at taking people, seeing what they could do, starting from there, figuring out here's what you need to learn, picking people who also knew how to learn. Right. I, I think learning how to learn. Is a skill, um, almost the most important skill you'll have in life. Uh, and so, finding people with that drive, that growth mindset, the the skill of learning how to learn, and being able to see how they can fit together into a data science team with distinct skill sets, um, coach them, uh, teach them, correct them directly, and put us together pointing our efforts towards really interesting problems that clients would bring to us. At that point in time, right, we were also very new to our clients. The pitch to them was, hey, just give us one peso. You have to pay us. That was the rule that we had set in place. You have to pay us something. But even if it's just one peso, give us something and give us a problem and we will try to solve it for you. Um, And that's how we were running um, as like a rock band uh, for the first couple of years.
0: This idea of a rock band for an early stage company makes so much sense to me. A small group of people making music, often chaotically, where each individual is unique and indispensable. I think right around this time, you have an experience that's a pretty um, emotionally impactful one for you. Tell us
1: what happened. Yeah, well, the first thing that got that happened is we got successful and we started getting bigger. And we started getting older. So um, five years into um, TM, uh, four or five years into TM, um, we were doing pretty well as a company, Um, had like a bunch more people on board, but still like had had that like a rock band kind of vibe to us. And one of my um, colleagues who joined us, like the third person to join the team, somebody I worked with like every single day, he came to me one day and said, Hey, I um I want to build products. I I love working with this team, but I don't want to do consulting anymore. And we had been for the last six months, right? He'd been pretty open about like wanting to explore that direction. And so for six months, we were trying to figure out like, is there a space to build a product in the company? Is there a space for that to make sense given who TM is? And we were doing well as a consulting company. And there wasn't a clear shining like B2B SaaS product um, that I could see in the stack of work we were doing. So I had to go back and tell him like, no, dude, I, I don't think there's anything here for us to work on together. And he then makes the very rational decision, communicated very kindly that he was gonna leave TM. And intellectually, this was fine so logical it was so amazing to have this dude this incredibly talented guy give us like five years of his career but emotionally it was horrible it was horrible it was the worst feeling in the world like I'm sitting there trying to process his resignation and the intellectual part of my brain is like yeah this makes sense we've tried everything this is correct but like I went home and just like Lie down on the floor. Had a total meltdown after I was trying to process this. And uh, if you're hearing this, <laughs> if you're hearing this, Steve, <laughs> I now now you can know about this. Uh, uh, we're we're still friends now, but I must say that that was uh, such a weird reaction for me to have about like a colleague who's making a very kind, calm, rational decision and bringing it to me.
0: Okay, so I'm imagining you here, Steph, on the floor of your room, (laughs) devastated um, by the experience of having one of your day one team members, or just about day one team members, make what you're calling a rational decision to move on, to pursue the thing that he was passionate about that he couldn't do at Thinking Machines. What do you think you learned from this experience of of watching, was it Steve? 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 um, walk out the door?
1: Oof. I mean, first I had to process that experience, right? Like I, um, first of all, I was very confused by my reaction to that because the way I was feeling was completely not aligned with what I was thinking. And I think Angie, that was probably like one of the first times that you and I talked, and I was just like, I don't get it. I don't get what's going on. Like I completely cannot like understand why, not why he's leaving. That was pretty like rational, logical, totally good reasons. Great. Like notice runway. Like he gave me everything I needed to, to make that transition smooth and successful. But what was I feeling? So first figuring out what I was feeling, I had to learn that this is triggering something in me and I do figure out what it is. And two, as I started like looking into replacing Steve, right? I realized that his role was completely individualized. There was no successor in place to step into his role. This was a very oddly shaped hole in our organization. And there is no way I could hire somebody directly into that role. And I was looking at it and thinking, wow, we had crafted this job totally around him and you're now trying to replace like a lead guitarist in a company but this is not anymore a five-person rock band this is like a really big orchestra we were 50 60 pushing 60 people at the time we were going through simultaneously this transition into um onboarding um a, a head of operations putting in place like a lot of structure in our organization. And I was not in a place where um, I could find another lead guitarist and put them in because that wasn't, that wasn't the business anymore. I had to run a totally different kind of process. And so me understanding that um, that was the end of an era
0: Mm. Uh, and even
1: realizing that that was an era to begin with, because I didn't know. Now I'm describing it to you as like, yeah, it was a super cool rock band. But when we were doing it, I didn't know that it was a rock band.
0: Yeah. Oh, there's so many powerful things in what you just said. I want to go slow for a minute and and make sure I'm I'm registering them as as you share them. So I actually remember it was about I think maybe it was about three years ago now, in, in December. Um, and it was a conversation we were having just before heading um, out for the holidays. And um, I remember that emotion rising in you. And, uh, you know, I'm hearing you to describe two, um, two kind of moments of reckoning, two different realizations. And that first one was, there's a real emotional reason I started this company, And it's not just to create a place where talented people can thrive, but it's to create a place where I, Steph, can work with people for whom I have a deep affinity, where I feel safe, where I can solve problems in a way that feels um, invigorating, and losing those people might actually be an important part of the process if yeah. I want to create a place where people can join and then move on and really relish the experience they've had and pass it on to others. But the losing them piece of it is going to feel devastating to me, like a part of my family is being ripped away. Right. And it I was
1: think, crazy. Yeah. I, I mean, um, I had described this garden that I wanted to create But it's not that I'm out of the garden, right? I'm some, um, I never, um, as I'm describing it, right? You're thinking, okay, there's a garden. But then there's the question of where am I in the garden? What is my emotional reason for starting the company? I wanted to be inside that garden. I didn't want to be inside the factory. Um, uh, I wanted not just to have a garden there, but I wanted to be in that garden, like hands in the dirt, working with really awesome people working with like these very specific brilliant um weirdos at tm um forever question mark and that's when when you know um when this guy left i was like oh that's crazy because for it to be a good ecosystem for people it it can't be it has to be a company that respects the fact that people move through different stages and cycles of life. It has to seed, you know, the whole point of the garden is that it has to like seed other gardens out there. People have to leave. Uh, people come back, people leave. That There's a whole rational reason why I wanted to design it that way. But emotionally, I just really wanted to work with this like core group of really awesome people forever. But that's not a company. That's a, <laughs> That's not a company. <laughs>
0: And so, you know, one of the reasons we um, use discovered evidence to understand ourselves better in the process of coaching, this idea of self-awareness and then ultimately personal responsibility is because by understanding our hidden motivations better, by understanding some of our blind spots better, we better see our actions in the context of those things and how sometimes the actions we take might undermine the ultimate goal we have. And so at the time that I was talking to you, I knew your ultimate goal was to build a bigger and better TM. But that if all you wanted to do was keep your beautiful weirdos around you, you were still going to build a rock band, not an orchestra. And a rock band can only get so big. You can only have one lead guitarist. You can only have one drummer. You can only have one lead singer. And right, there's now no room to, to,
1: to train me. multiple drummers. <laughs> there's no room to train it because you only have one drummer in a rock band. And that 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 was such a, that I remember that. That was like, uh, yeah, right after Thanksgiving, I think uh, three years ago. And I think that was also the moment where I realized that I had been planning. I I really needed to make an active choice to scale TM or not. Mm-hmm. I really needed to decide at that point. That And then that was like really, um, you know, when you are growing a company and knock on wood, I've been very lucky to, um, have, um, to not have, um, a lot of VC money involved. Um, and, uh, the investors I do have on board were super supportive, small friends and family around. So they're very supportive of like, Hey, uh, build something interesting in this world, like do it your way. But I, I had a real choice in that moment to keep the company, uh, to keep the company as a rock band and that it filled a emotional need in me, or to really embrace that I had to transform if what I really wanted was to create this unique operating environment that would influence not just the people who work directly in TM, but would be a cultural influence in our region that could impact a lot of people, a lot of companies, I would have to change. So it's either the company changes or I change. And it all came down to like, what am I really doing this for? Why am I really starting this company? Because both of these things were had uh, a lot of truth. I mean, had all the truth in them.
0: Oof. Okay. So what's really resonant for me, I'm the lucky one here who gets to spend my days talking to founders, is this moment of realizing that there may be a conflict Between the thing that makes you feel safe, fulfilled, happy on a day-to-day basis, working with a small group of beautiful weirdos, and the thing that you believe is the ultimate fulfillment of your company's potential, which is this scaled data science consultancy that creates better outcomes for companies and civil institutions in the Philippines because they can use their data better, they can make better informed decisions, they can become more meritocratic and also serves as a place that trains and then sends on the type of CTO level talent that's needed in the region and probably underdeveloped in the region. And so here you have what Steph wants and what Steph's great at and here you have what the ultimate potential of this company is. And so how do you make sense of the difference between those two things?
1: Oof, that, I think we were, I think you and I were talking about that for like two months, actually. Uh, And I I think that was really useful to have um, just one that understanding of what was on the table. Uh, because I was talking to mentors, I was talking to friends, uh, other startup founders, and they all give advice from the perspective of, here's what I would do if I were on your shoes, or here's, I, here's what I will recommend to you based on my understanding of what you want. And um, what most people thought I wanted was, of course, you want to grow a huge company, right? Like, of course, you want to go like all the way, like try to go for, uh, you know, be a unicorn uh, company, hire thousands of people. Um, so that that was, um, and for some reason, and now ben and I've learned why, a lot of that advice wasn't quite ringing true to me. And finally, first understanding that there was like a choice to be made there between what kept me safe and happy on a day-to-day basis and what I really truly believed TM could be. That really helped me first sit down with myself and say, okay, not not what makes me safe and happy on a day-to-day basis, but what do I want in this world? And it would have been valid, you know, if if somebody out there is facing the same choice, it is valid to say, hey, actually, I don't think I want to go through all this like pain and suffering uh, to change uh, and like discomfort, like really extreme discomfort to evolve uh, because the process of evolution that I've been going through in the last three years has been painful, confusing, occasionally like botched. But um, because I chose to do it and it was an active choice, it wasn't just like I just stepped into it by accident. Every moment of discomfort, I'm able to re like uh, um, reframe it as, "Hey, this is me learning and growing." I'm able to have a sense of humor about it. I'm able to see how it helps me get to the person i want to be and get tm to the kind of company uh, i think it can be um and that's um, awesome i mean every action item that i've taken on since then you know could just be more described as this very structured um bringing on a vp of operations setting up a hiring process setting up a um setting up um a promotion process, setting up guidelines for skills matrix, how we hire, how we train, how we systematize our approach towards solving client problems, and um, going through all of that to bring the company to to now like 200 people um, while still retaining that like culture and spirit of it um, has been um, uh, such a big. It's not over yet. I mean, I'm talking to you as somebody who's still in progress, and the company is still in progress. Uh, but it was so important to recognize uh, those motivations so that I could re—I could understand myself well enough to um, not let go of them, but to understand when they served me and when they didn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what
0: I'm hearing is you kind of understood left to your own devices. You might end up making the trade-off in the other direction. Let me just build the thing that feels safe, that um I feel you know, a compulsion towards, versus let me really anchor to my purpose for building this company and the ultimate potential that I think it can uh, I can help it to achieve. And um I'm hearing you say, I'm going to give a little voiceover for for the part of the story that you just described that you realized you couldn't leave yourself to your own devices. So you talked about hiring a few different folks. Can you tell us who you hired and what exactly you were trying to
1: do by bringing them on board? Yeah. um, So the very earliest hires of TM, um, I am not embarrassed to say this, they were hired based on vibes. They were hired based on like, wow, that is a super cool piece of work Would you like to come in and work together? And I'm sure, you know, we vibe, we'll figure out how this is going to work. The first real hire I made based on, hey, the company needs something, um, was uh, a wonderful um, uh, sales leader who who built our uh, selling organization. And that was a really obvious spot, right? It's like, oh, we have a business. Uh, I think we could be selling more. Uh, I'm not super strong at selling. Uh, let me hire somebody to help me um, to build this uh, the the, uh, the strategy, the business strategy. Uh, someone with management consulting experience, uh, somebody who knows how to structure and sell deals. Great, brought that person on board. Uh, fantastic. Uh, then the trickier next hires were were senior uh, leadership um, um, people who um, I brought on to hire things that are a little, a little less obvious. Um, needed, but um, I wasn't quite sure how to hire these people, and so I got very lucky in a very strong head of uh, delivery who joined our team, uh, and a very strong head of operations. And the head of operations and I shared this manic insistence on talent development, recognizing, spotting, and cultivating talent. But we had very, very different approaches towards it. She's one of the most systematic people. Uh, and policy-driven people uh, I've ever met with memory like a steel trap. I cannot remember if you ask me what our policy is on something on three different days. I might give you three slightly different answers. Um, and so, where um, where these people came in um, was to set up systems and structure where my cowboy ass just could not do it.
0: And so we, you know, we have this term, you know, it, Steph, at talentism. Um, that we use often, which is design for people. So when you arrive at that moment, when you realize that what your company needs in order to achieve its purpose, in order to scale, is not what you have to give, and in fact, it might sit right in one of your blind spots. What your company needs right now, uh, you can do one of two things. You well, you can do one of three things, I guess. You can throw up your hands and say, "Well, I guess." I guess we're done. This is it. <laughs> <laughs> this is it. Um, you can practice. You can practice the thing that your company needs that, you're, that uh, you haven't had practice doing yet. Um, or you can hire, right? You can design a system that relies on others instead of on yourself for that thing. And what I'm hearing you say is when we got to the point where it was no longer sustainable to operate as a rock band with individualized roles for brilliant weirdos, And when we needed to have a little bit more systemization in order to be able to hire at scale, to train talent at scale, to deliver on projects at scale, to sell at scale, I needed to hire other people who would be great at that thing. So how did that go? Because I think you're describing a situation that so many first-time founders find themselves in when they're starting to scale, which is I had to hire people who could do a job that I couldn't do. (laughs) I didn't know what good could look like. And when they got in the seat, they started doing a bunch of stuff that, that really felt
1: kind of challenging, maybe even threatening to me. Very threatening. And it's crazy, right? I hired them to do something. They start doing it. And then I start freaking out about them doing the thing I hired them to do. <laughs> Illog- illogical, completely illogical. I, and um, I, I kind of want to point out also that um, I had a bit of insecurity from starting from being so much younger than them also. Um, and I think this might happen. This, this is also, also something that happens in startup world where uh, you have this like young CEO with a good concept hiring an experienced executive who's like 10 years older, who's seen a lot more and um, getting insecure about needing to prove I wanted to prove that I could do the job but I couldn't do the job. I hired them because I couldn't do the job. But a piece of me was still like pretty insecure about um, uh, number one, like proving to them uh, that they had made a good choice to to come work with me. Uh, number two, um, freaking out in moments where they're doing the job I asked them to do. Uh, so for example, the VP of Ops trying to systematize our hiring process instead of um, Steph looking, Steph seeing, oh, cool blog posts. Let me email the person who wrote the blog post, like catch them for coffee, see what they're doing. Hey, why don't we have a application process <laughs> instead of, well, um instead of having a process where it's like, you know, look at one code sample, uh, do some pairing, like have a conversation that's like set up a structure for what might a panel interview look like, how might we standardize interview questions, so you're basically people are getting the same experience when you're working with us, like, setting, um, setting hiring targets. I was like hiring targets the first time, um, she ever brought that to me, you know, the question of how many people do we want to hire this quarter? And I was like stunned. I was thinking, what do you mean? How many, like how many cool people are out there who we can spot? Um, you know, that, um, a lot of these moments of chaos and friction, um, between, um, me and these executives I've hired, but also a lot of these moments of me learning from them and them, us all being very culturally aligned with each other. So, starting with that sense of mission alignment, culture alignment, uh, and all these executives also had a little bit of weirdo in them. So, we recognized that in each other. Um, and that was like a bit of a seed of trust and needing to trust each other through this process um, also. Um, so, um, we were driving each other. I know I was driving our VP of ops a little bit crazy, uh, and I still do, uh, but learning how to trust her to run her process and her learning how to, how and when to trust and deploy me, right. So that, that my strengths also still show up, uh, in, in this process. Um, I'm going to tell like just a quick story of, um, um, you know, our VP of ops is trying to systematize our hiring process and trying to systemize how we, receive resumes, process them, invite people to come interview, interview them. And me, one day I just get so Paranoid, irritated. Like, I don't know what was going on through my head. Like, I lost it. I went through the slush pile. I personally went through the email, like, the slush pile of resumes. And I started picking up, like, what about this candidate? What about this candidate? Have we thought about this one? Like, yeah, their grades are crap, but that shouldn't matter, right? And completely undercutting her, completely undercutting this process, completely confusing. Um, the uh, the hiring uh, person who was trying to run this process. And and I was worried and I was freaking out because I was so scared that we would end up hiring people who just looked good on paper, that we would only interview people who looked good on the resumes because so many of TM's best employees, uh, the best teammates to come join us were outliers, nonconformists, people who got bad grades in college, um, somebody who dropped out of college, like people who could do the work, but who were under indexed, uh, undervalued by uh, most standard indicators. So I was so scared that now we're having a process where I'm going to end up just like all those corporate companies who do things on a super strict process. And that was, um, uh, oof, like just thinking about that, I got kind of worked up. <laughs> <laughs> can tell. Well, and I, you know, the
0: way the brain works when you're going back in time into a memory, the brain doesn't know you're not there. So why don't you take a deep breath <laughs> and come back to the present? Um, the The thing I want to highlight, Steph, is the absolutely common experience I think you're describing that many founders and often just sort of managers learning to delegate to other managers below them experience which is, if I were doing it, I'm talking as you know, Steph, if I were doing it, either it would go faster, it would go better in some way, like I would be able to catch the exceptional people who don't meet the standard indicators, right? Um, It would be more reliable. And this is the experience I think so many founders have when they say, okay, instead of me being the doer, I want somebody else to be responsible and then they watch what happens and it doesn't look like they would have done it. (laughs) And so we, we feel this catch 22 of, but if I do it, it won't scale and I won't be able to focus on my highest use as CEO and I'll be stuck doing a bunch of the functions of the company that it's not sustainable for me to do anymore, right? So if I do it the way I Hmm. want to, it's not going to, it's not going to scale or if I hand it to someone else, I have to learn to deal with the anxiety of, of it happening differently. Oh, and I yeah. really want you to help us with, you gave us some clues as to how you got comfortable with your the approach that your VP of ops was taking. I think one of the clues you gave us was there was a real sense of shared mission. And I think another one of the clues you gave us was from a culture perspective, you felt an alignment. Tell us more about how you got comfortable with your VP of ops taking a very different approach to hiring and training than you would have
1: yeah I um I feel like it's such a common it, it's such a common thing that happens and I don't know how um, I think ah. Uh, I think she was actually the person who was brave enough to just see me going kind of psycho and call me out and say, Hey, you hired me to do the job. Why don't, why aren't you trusting me to do the job you hired me to do? Um, instead of dealing with me on those specific people, resumes, that thing that I was trying to pick a fight about, um, And so first starting from just creating that space where we could step back and just have a very open, vulnerable conversation with each other about what is the job that I hired her to do? Do I believe? Why did I believe she could do it? What did we both believe to be true to the spirit of hiring, growing talent, scaling, and and just having us sit down with each other and like reconfirm the fact that we're both completely aligned, completely mission aligned on uh, developing talent and that we wanted to work with each other because we just saw we had different um, skills that we bring to the table. Um, and having just first being able to spot what was happening, second being able to have like a trust building vulnerable conversation about like why we were both in this and what we saw in each other really got us to the place where then we started talking about, okay, uh, we weren't calling it um, a design uh, at that point, um, but talking about how we saw the process running, how we would know if it was working or not, um, how I uh, uh, could still and should still be part of um, communicating culture uh, to the team to make sure that they understand when they join TM. uh, Because I realized, that that was quite important to me, that they understood what culture they were signing up for. Um, So um, I still do, um, until I think we were about 150 people, I was uh, doing final interviews uh, for everybody. Um, Now uh, what I'm doing is um, for everybody who starts, um, we do a culture onboarding in their first week of work where I really sit them down, talk to them about our formative stories. Because, you know, it's one thing to see the, you know here's your core values but i think telling the story the story brings people along you know when you're reliving the story you're almost like bringing people along the story with you and it's it's almost like fables right like i actually think that uh, core values or companies' cultural values are probably best expressed like fairy tales where you you just tell the the story and they'll kind of they of get the nuance and the, the arc of that and so building in that system for how we how and why do we work together, how we recruit, how we hire, where she deploys me, how I can see if it's working or not. Um, Getting to that place where we're unlocking the system, um, that was super powerful and got us to this place where I don't freak out about uh, the hiring pipeline anymore, but I will come to her quite often with ideas on, hey, what if we do a coding bootcamp event? Hey, what if we start giving away t-shirts at the bouldering uh, at the bouldering spot near our office, uh, and we can have a fun talk about that. So it, again,
0: I want to highlight just how frequently I hear this story, and how common this experience is, which is and and in particular for founders who, in order to get their business from zero to one, to kind of give birth to this thing that didn't exist and now needs to exist through their own, you know, sweat and work and tears. They have, they have been the one doing a mm-hmm. lot of the stuff. And usually there's a particular spike that they brought to the table. Maybe it was business development and sales. Maybe it was de- uh, building the product, visioning and building the product. Maybe it was hiring the talent, right? In your case, hiring the talent was certainly part of it. And to transition that responsibility to somebody else can feel can feel uh, challenging, even threatening. And I think what I'm hearing you say was a big part of your ability to transition was thinking about what was the responsibility? Why did you hire the person? What were the outcomes you were seeing through time, and how did it make sense for you to be involved in the process, both to evaluate how it was going, as it was going? But also to be used kind of as a cog, go back to that idea of cog job, kind of to be used as part of the machine to produce outcomes, right? As part of the system that was actually being run by the person you hired, almost like they were your boss for this particular function or this area of responsibility. Yeah,
1: and I must say, it's very nice to sometimes have somebody else be the boss. I uh, was like, cool, just point me put that meeting on my calendar. I know what, like, I have a job to do. I'll do it. I'm part of the system. Um, It's very nice to not have to actively think about every single thing that I do uh, every day now. Uh, So that's uh, getting past do and more into uh, design uh, from that perspective. Um, Actually, it's nice to be part of the do cycle because I love doing things. That's the whole, that's, That's my whole motivation for starting TM. I'm good at doing things. I'm good at doing a huge variety of things. And then not being able to do everything was driving me totally insane.
0: I actually think that's a really important insight that we sometimes skip past, which is in giving up your Legos as a founder, if you do it in a way that doesn't actually allow you to scratch the itch of what's most satisfying to you, you're more likely to fail in giving up your Legos. So if you had said to your VP of Ops, this is all you now, and she hadn't found a way to let you still meet with candidates in a final round or meet with newbies in their orientation to talk about culture, I suspect without that outlet, without that ability to scratch your itch to be with your brand new beautiful weirdos you actually wouldn't be able to take the step back that was necessary for her to run the whole process. And so again, for other founders who are going through this really common transition, I think part of what made this recipe successful for Steph and her VP of ops was not only blind trust. It wasn't blind trust. It was earned trust it was cultural alignment, it was mission alignment, but it was also finding ways that staff could be involved that were productive as judged (laughs) by both parties.
1: (laughs) Um, Yeah, even though it makes me sound a little bit like, um, uh, you know, give the kid a toy, it's not that, right? The job that that, um, our VP of Ops asks me to do is like a difficult and important job. Uh, It's just that she can trigger it. And it has a clear start and end. And uh, there's a very clear um, satisfaction that I get about doing that job, getting to the end, knowing it's done, uh, moving on uh, to the rest of my day. And it's very, and it lets me stay calm. I think, I think it helps me keep connected with the team. It's productive for them. It's, it's both productive and emotionally satisfying for me. I think it's a, it's genuinely, no matter how busy I am, Uh, It's a big highlight uh, of my week or of my month uh, when I run the uh, new culture onboarding uh, and get people talking to me about what makes them unique, which values do they resonate with, how uh, do they want to hear other of our stories, hearing their stories of their lives. Uh, That's a big, um, um, that actually keeps me sane um, in uh, in many weeks. So you've
0: heard Steph talk about design a couple times now. At Talentism, we use that word to mean something very specific. It sits inside of our 4D framework. Those 4Ds are do, decide, design, and decode. Do, it's what it sounds like. You are getting the work done yourself. Decide, also what it sounds like. You are deciding what other people should do and then overseeing them as they do it. Design. Here's where it gets tricky. You are thinking about how to enable others to get work done without your constant supervision. You're hiring people who think differently from you and helping them to achieve their goals without actually doing the work or telling them what to do. Decoding. Decoding is when you're looking out at your market, your customers, the world, and figuring out which insights are going to be game-changing for your company.
1: I I do want to highlight that do and decide are pretty easy to, pretty straightforward to get to. You know, you do something, you grow, you start thinking about, I make the decisions or I delegate different chunks to different people. Um, I think that the part that has been incredibly hard for me has been thinking about design, because that's a totally different muscle. Uh, that's a totally different muscle. It's not particularly intuitive. Uh, it's easy to say, oh, let's think about your design in the system. How do we measure success? How do?" You... But for, um, for most people, I think myself included, um, it's actually a huge quantum leap to be simultaneously running a company and redesigning a company um, as you're running and changing the way you think about you, a task comes in front of you. Most of the time, the thing to do is you either do it or you say, find somebody else's, like, you do it. It's very hard to step back from that problem because that problem is real. Somebody is not, like... This is a deal that could close. It's like a hot lead off the press. It's like a really tricky machine learning problem that's like just landed on your plate. It's trying to understand, do you have enough data to build this model? It's trying to figure out, this person has an invoice that they haven't paid you. What are you going to do about it? Um, and going from that problem, which needs to be solved today, to thinking about how does this problem, how is this immediate small thing, a symptom of our system? How, how do we set up our system of work for, um, uh, for building and deploying machine learning models into production or how do we think about our system of like billing and invoicing clients. It's so hard to do that when like immediately in front of you is a small screaming problem saying, solve me now, please, or this company might not make it to tomorrow. Um, so that's... That's just like a really lived experience of uh, pain and challenge, but it is possible. I will have to say, it is it is quite quite possible. So throughout this entire conversation,
0: Steph, I'm so grateful that you've been dropping breadcrumbs and giving juicy tidbits to listeners about um, you know what you've learned and 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 how you would now share that as advice from your perspective. Is there anything else that you would want to reflect on or share as a piece of advice or mentorship um, for other founders or or other managers who are scaling um, and facing similar challenges to yours and sort of going through their own journey of self-reflection and understanding their motivations and their blind
1: spots? Yeah. I mean, um, as founders, we're building dynamic systems. Um, When we're doing our jobs well, Problems don't go away. You just get new and different and hopefully um, more interesting and hard problems. Uh, the the bad version, like there's only high quality. There's no such thing as no problems. There's just low quality problems, which are you're doing the same problem over and over again. And high quality problems, which are new, exciting, and different uh, problems to have to solve. Um, and the only common factor here is yourself, right? You are the only thing you can ma- like hold true and constant throughout like this whole journey of starting a company, growing it, getting investors, maybe selling it, maybe taking it to IPO, maybe having to wind it down. Like what's the common factor here? You. Um, and me knowing myself more fully and knowing how likely I am to break things, make them stronger just by my presence or absence. You know, sometimes I have to improve myself. Sometimes I have to absent myself in the situation and put somebody else in there. Um, knowing those things about myself helps improve the odds of success um, of tm, of and of me. Um, and that means evolving. So um, evolving evolution is so cool and powerful. Um, I really think that if you as a founder can take your strengths because you have them, right? Like otherwise you wouldn't start a company, and take your superpower. And recognize that at some points, if you are doing things well, your superpower will become a liability. And at that point, you have to evolve. Um, I had to redeploy my obsession with, um, with um, building teams uh, or not building teams, like finding really cool people and constructing really unique roles for them. I had to find a way to evolve that and redeploy that into setting up like great systems to bring in like cool people, a culture that trains people into excellence in data, and then pointing the strength also at new things, right? I didn't realize it, but a lot of the things that made me good at talking to people and understanding um, where they could fit in our organization also makes me good at talking to clients and figuring out how what do they need specifically for them, not just what's like a general best practice, but what does this person, this company need. Um, How do I design something that's very uniquely for them? That's actually an evolution um, with the same roots um, as my original obsession with talent. Um, And that's awesome. I I think that continuing to grow and evolve and chasing your obsessions, um, making yourself a better person, um, no matter what happens to your company, I hope that that will give you a lot of satisfaction and happiness uh, in life. That was beautiful, Steph. I want
0: to put on a fortune cookie. When
1: (laughs) When your superpower
0: becomes a liability, it's an opportunity to evolve. I love it. If you relate to anything Steph felt in this podcast or the 4D model struck a chord with you, I invite you to have a chat with someone at Talentism. Drop us a line at info at talentism.com and schedule a 30-minute conversation with one of our coaches. We want to hear from you. You can learn more about how we guide our clients at talentism.com, where we share our insights from serving over 800 companies. This episode was produced by John Hunter with story editing by Jesse Gormizano. Special thanks to Greg Kim, Rachel Kiddo, and Rocio Gonzalez.